0: Uh, you know, it's just not the same with Ben, but
2: I understand. He's he's so important now. He he's so important
3: he can't be here. He's
2: lounging poolside in Beverly Hills yeah. with like a giant You guys cell are phone. so full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to get just months of mileage out of teasing Ben. Yes. One of, not just one of Politico's top 50. Yeah. Number 15. Wait, is this a ranked list?
0: Does that mean that there are 35 people who are important, Ben, but not as important as you are?
2: You know what? I think we should just read it I, that way. Ben, I how do you I feel mean, about... Actually, I don't,
1: I've, never underst- I've never understood whether the list was ranked. Um, it, it, if it is, they, I think they have a little bit of explaining to do as to some of the, some of the rankings relative to one another. Like, how does Sally Yates... Who is not in office rank higher than Bob Mueller, who is, or,
2: or Paul for Ryan, matter, ha- who's dead
0: last. Yeah, how do you outrank Paul Ryan, Ben? How do you manage no, that? I one? agree with I that. I
1: don't know. I mean, right? But 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 Norm Eisen outranks both of us. So I I hope it isn't ranked because it doesn't make the ranking doesn't make any sense if it does. Right. So.
3: Ben, I just have one question, which is, how are you comfortable with the new title that Politico has given you, Bard of the Deep State? <laughs> uh,
1: well, it's putting a lot of pressure on me to write poetry, and I, I'm very uncomfortable with it.
0: <laughs> Good thing you're an English major.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I, in all seriousness, uh, I, I, I find these uh, ranking systems kind of silly. And so when when Politico got in touch with me about it, um, I told them I wasn't going to cooperate with it, and I didn't sit for a picture, uh, and I didn't fill out their survey, and I wasn't interviewed for it. Although they did call me and check a couple facts, um, and I thought the profile they did was actually one of the best profiles. Were uh, discussions of sort of lawfare and my work that anyone has done and so i think the clear moral of that story is don't cooperate with profiles or reporters (laughs) and they'll do a better job of 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 if you don't cooperate
3: than if you engage
0: ignorance is bliss but not ignorance of ben wittis number 15
3: hello and welcome to rational security the hurricane alley edition i'm shane harris wet reporter it's very rainy here today in washington not yes. as wet as it's going to be it's in Florida great. soon. Ben, how's the weather in it's Beverly Hills, California? Beautiful
1: and sunny in Beverly
3: Hills.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I'm here in the studio with my good friends Tamara coffin winters and Susan Hennessy while well, Number Fifteen is sunning by the pool.
0: <laughs> We're just going to call him go Number by.
3: Fifteen. It's my, it,
1: it's it's my my my. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a specter number is number fifteen, right? Totally.
3: <laughs> or like you're like on the blacklist.
1: We didn't you're, even make the list. The I mean, I'm list. sure we're
2: like fifty-one, fifty-two, fifty-three. Like we're right on the we're cusp. Shane Harris is definitely fifty-one. I'm somewhere
1: in there. Can I can I also <laughs> just point out that that if since since Bannon's pres- has been presumably uh, he's number one on the list, um, but presumably that whole thing was compiled. Before he was ousted from the White House, maybe he's not number one anymore. So I think I really should be number fourteen.
2: Right, everybody bumps up. Right, when <laughs> like the, right? no, it's, it's the queen dies. Right.
3: The queen. I think Politico is attributing it's some Obi Wan Kenobi action to Bannon, which is "You can strike me down, I'll be more powerful than you can possibly imagine."
1: So, so you think he's he's. He's still number 1 even though Oh, I think he was, he was like tired. 17 and he
3: quit and they're like that's it top of the list baby. <laughs> Actually,
0: you know who's not on the I list? I also but- want to
1: the other big thing I want to know about this ranking system is how did they decide who gets the bobbleheads in the I in noticed the that Ben spread. got a wiggly
2: head. And other people were just static. yeah.
1: My head bobbles. Maybe they think others, you have a weak Some spine. of the others don't. <laughs> <laughs> and are they trying to send a message with whose head is bobbling? T-
3: totally.
2: Probably. We should we should spend um, a lot of time. And and yeah, the we should definitely keep about talking
3: this. about this instead of the news. <laughs> 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 um, all right. This week on the podcast, Trump's lawyers argue that he didn't obstruct justice when he fired Jim Comey. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley explains how the U.S. could leave the Iran nuclear deal. And the Homeland Security Department faces one of its greatest tests in the aftermath of aftermath of Hurricane Harvey just as a new storm is approaching the Florida coast. Um, let's start with uh, the Trump lawyers and, and other all things, other things of Russia. A lot of news last week uh, that we didn't have a chance to talk to because it happened after we'd recorded. In addition to Trump's lawyers meeting with Mueller... Uh, and arguing that he couldn't have obstructed justice when he fired the FBI director, which is a story we broke with the journal. Uh, there was news as well that the New York Attorney General and the Trump team are working together on their various investigations, and also news that Renat Akhmetshin who is the Russian, quote-unquote, intelligence officer, we can talk about why that's in air quotes, <clears throat> who was in Trump Tower for that famous meeting with Don Jr. and the Russians, testified before the grand jury.
0: Can you um, just say his name one more time?
3: Renat Akhmetshin
0: what? I'm sorry, Shana. I didn't get that. Can you Renate say that again? Renat Wow. Like I'm that? impressed. I've been practicing. That's, that's good journalism right Thanks.
3: there. Um, ben, let me start with you. And we talked a little bit about this on the in the Lawfare podcast last week. Um, but talk about the significance. Uh, let's start with the fact that, that, that the Trump lawyers met with <laughs> Mueller uh, and made this case. I mean, what what conclusions did you immediately draw from from what we know about what happened at that meeting?
1: Well, I I draw uh, two conclusions from it. One is that Mueller has, or at least Trump's lawyers believe he has, front loaded the obstruction component of this investigation, or front burnered it. And I think that that is consistent with uh, certain other reporting, Um, but it does show that the, I think, obstruction part of the investigation, at least in the minds of the Trump lawyers, is the first and initial thing that they need to deal with. And uh, I think that's, you know, interesting and almost certainly means something other than the spin that they... Uh, seem to attach to it, which is that the uh, investigation is seeking to resolve this issue first to kind of clear the president and clear the decks of this one thing. I think that's probably not what it suggests. It probably suggests, at least to me, that there is a serious obstruction of justice investigation going on. The second thing, uh, then this is a substantive analysis of the arguments that the journal reported that uh, they made is that it strikes me as a real show of weakness uh, on the part of uh, Trump's lawyers. Um, They argued in one memo that uh, the president didn't obstruct justice because he has the inherent authority to fire anybody he wants. And that strikes me as a very over broad argument uh, in the context of the uh, broad set of concerns about his behavior toward Comey that have been raised, um, and secondly, they argued that um, he's uh, that you know Comey's a jerk and and a liar and a braggart, and that you shouldn't believe him, and I, so. I don't know on what basis this issue is going to be resolved, but I don't think it will be resolved on the basis either of the president's inherent authority to staff the executive branch or on the basis of uh, Jim Comey's being an unreliable braggart. And so I read the story with some sense that the president's uh, arguments are quite weak and uh, that his lawyers are nervous enough to be... Uh, sort of preemptively advancing these weak arguments early in the investigation in an attempt to head stuff off.
3: Susan, how did it strike your your lawyerly ears? I had
2: um, largely similar thoughts to Ben, and and as you mentioned, we sort of got into this on the Lawfare Podcast in more depth uh, last week, but yeah, I mean, I think, look, the inherent authority argument is sort of nonsense, Um, so Paul Rosenzweig made the point of, you know, you can have the inherent authority to award a government contract if you do it in exchange for money improperly, that's bribery, so, right, sort of this notion of, like, the fact that it's authorized means you cannot sort of do it in discharge. It in an improper way that just sort of on its face doesn't make much sense it's a little bit hard to judge the nuance of legal arguments based off of like without having to actually seen the memo and, and the underlying sort of cases and the authority it cites and and um you know the journal obviously reported on the memos but but didn't uh, didn't have <coughs> or didn't publish the full memos um so the other thing I think I think sort of the look um, the fact that the lawyers sat down with Mueller not strange this is what defense attorneys do kind of try and advocate on behalf of their clients you know uh, establish a channel uh, you know with investigators and prosecutors the Comey smear m- really does strike me as as a really bizarre move one that just no reasonable person could possibly think was going to work. I mean, this is the director of the FBI. He had contemporaneous memos and all sorts of other people who back up his story. I mean, sort of this notion of, well, he's making it up to, to advance that to DOJ and to Mueller's team, right? So we're not talking about Trump insulting Comey in the court of public opinion, but actually trying to make it part of their legal argument. That strikes me as so silly that the only explanation I can come up with is, they have this really difficult, crazy, demanding client, and so he is insisting that they do certain things, um, and they are doing things in order to essentially appease him that are not really smart or strategic in terms of, you know, where the investigation is going. Now, maybe the memo, you know, the Comey memo, kind of does no harm. Mueller's team looks at it and rolls their eyes and says, "Okay, thank you very much," but I do think that it um, opens the question of how much is Trump's sort of bizarre temper tantrum personality going to dictate his actual lawyer strategy and, and in what way is that's going to impact sort of the investigation and and what it looks like in in the same strange ways that his personality has made other processes that are familiar look really sort of unusual.
0: Yeah, I guess the other question I have about this is which of Trump's lawyers, right? <laughs> because um, the this memo was, it seems just from the timing that this was done by those lawyers who um, had been with Trump for a while before he kind of switched up his team. And so one wonders, you know, with um, with the team that he's got today, would they go through that exercise again? The same way or would they do it differently i mean you said it's normal for lawyers to meet with a with a prosecutor or investigator and make their case but would they do it in this sort of aggressive manner Yeah, you mean you
1: mean the sensible moderate lawyers who asked a journalist <laughs> whether she was on drugs and at 1 on a saturday morning
2: wait i thought that was the spokesman for the lawyer or no. the no, lawyers' lawyer. No. That was Ty Cobb's. <laughs> it's it's hard to keep in mind. Are we talking about lawyers? The lawyers' lawyers. The lawyers' lawyers. The lawyer lawyers. Spokesman.
3: But you know that's a great point because you know it's there's. I think my initial reaction to this story that reported the journal was um, this is a very difficult client making demands of his lawyers to go out and fix things, and they thought, okay, well we'll do something that can. You know, make it not to say look like we're busy, but to sort of satisfy him. <clears throat> but I think it's equally plausible, of course, that the lawyers also think this is outrageous and want to get ahead of it. And I mean, you've seen Jay Seculo, I think, publicly making comments. Uh, it was in the Adam Davidson article from a few weeks ago in The New Yorker. Um, that he was sort of putting Mueller on notice, that if you start crossing into territories that we think are out of scope, we're going to complain and we're going to make efforts to get you to get back within your scope. Yeah, um, and,
0: and we're going to try and delegitimize you. I also think, I mean, my other sort of lingering question after all the news that's broken over the last few days on this is, you know, where are we on the broader story of collusion with Russia? Um, because this is about, you know, this interaction with the lawyers was about obstruction, but we also have the whole Manafort, you know, Ukraine improper payments, New York attorney general um, investigation and how that leverages on this. But it at least in terms of the public reporting and the public record, we still don't know what all of this has to tell us about collusion with Russia, do
2: we? I don't know. I mean, I I think we obviously we have such a broad, multifaceted investigation. But even on sort of the obstruction point alone, and I think the the most significant stories of the past week have been related to the obstruction. And to to Shane's point on scope, one of sort of the stories that I thought was most shocking, but didn't get that much pickup, was revelations that Trump had actually drafted a memo, um, laying out all of his thinking about why he wanted to fire Comey. Um, <clears throat> sort of a, like a, a stream of consciousness thing that Stephen Miller drafted with him um, and that he actually shared that memo with the Department of Justice uh, ahead of and, and then the Department of Justice and the White House Counsel said no 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 like you can't use this memo presumably there was something legally problematic in, in it um, and then the Department of Justice went ahead with this you know this is that we're we're gonna fire Comey because of how he handled the Clinton email investigation to my mind that really does raised questions as to why Rod Rosenstein has not recused himself from the investigation. Whereas there's been calls from sort of the outset now, as opposed to just, well, he was asked to write a memo and maybe he's sort of a secondary witness now. No, he was actually part of, uh-huh. in effect an obstructive effort where they knew that they were creating a pretextual reason to fire him it's that's just that strikes me as a really shocking story a really bad story for Rosenstein I was just I was surprised that that hasn't sort of gotten more more pickup
3: and you mean knew in, in part of a pretextual effort insofar as he knew that the president had already written a memo and then he comes in and writes a memo and then they rely on his memo, not the president's, for the justification. Right, so the president
2: Comey. says, these are the reasons I want to fire right. Comey. Somebody says, well, you can't fire Comey for those reasons. And then Rosenstein, having seen the original memo, says, well, let me give you a memo with reasons that you why you can't fire use. the president. Yeah.
3: Ben, what, I, do you, what do you think about right, that? That's so, fascinating. Yeah.
1: Well, so I, I think that um, if that fact pattern is really true, and if the underlying memo that they were given is as bad as we all sort of imagine it to be, that is a stream of consciousness thing that says, you know, and by the way, I hate the Russia investigation, Uh, then Rosenstein's conduct is incomprehensible. And I don't understand how uh, he is not recused. Um, And so my... All of that makes me uh, at least a little bit cautious about uh, the question of what did Rod Rosenstein know and when did he know it uh, and how much of that memo did he in fact see and how explicit was that memo that that a reasonable reader of it who then turned around and wrote the memo that Rosenstein wrote was writing a pretextual document for a firing that was in fact taking place for different reasons that had to do with the conduct of, an imp- of a pending investigation. And I think you, you, you gotta know, b- before you decide how bad it is for Rosenstein, and I agree with Susan that it looks pretty bad, you gotta know the
3: answers to those questions. Okay, to be continued. Um, let's move on to uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, on Tuesday of this week, at a speech at the American Enterprise Institute, the UN ambassador gave a <clears throat> very carefully scripted, I will say, uh, address for about twenty minutes. Can
1: we start calling her president? Can we start calling her presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, <laughs>
0: <laughs> or or potential Secretary of State or de facto Secretary of State, Nikki Haley? <laughs> Uh, well, this looks
1: like primary challenger Nikki Haley. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Presumptive
2: not... nominee yeah, Nikki maybe Haley. Maybe so. <laughs> we'll see.
3: Well, she's certainly laying out her uh, uh, view on Iran policy on this one. In um, <clears throat> this speech, essentially laid out not to say that the United States was planning on leaving the Iran nuclear deal, um, but went out. Uh, To basically make the case that whether we decide to stay in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the JCPOA does not depend entirely on whether Iran is living up to the technical obligations of the agreement, but also the United States will take into account its history. Uh, with Iran and the fact that Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. She said, quote, what I'm saying is should he decide, meaning the president, to decertify, he has grounds to stand on. It's very easy just to talk about compliance with the agreement, but there's so much more to the story that we need to be looking at. Um, I found this tomorrow just totally fascinating in the sense that here's a senior U.S. official standing up and saying this agreement that was ironed out after months and months of negotiation that the United States agreed to, um, we may or may not recertify it based on terms that aren't explicitly in the agreement. Um, am I reading it the wrong way? I mean, she's sort of saying, I don't mean to be flip about this, but it was sort of saying it depends on how we feel about Iran, uh, as opposed to simply whether Iran is living up to the obligations spelled out in the contract.
0: Yeah, so I I don't think she was necessarily signaling that uh, the bigger picture of Iran's um, hostile foreign policy toward the United States and its interests will be the determining factor. I think what she was doing in the speech was um, providing a substantive policy justification for the door that President Trump had already opened to not recertifying the deal. And under the terms of the Corker Carden legislation um, that Congress passed after the deal, when the deal was um, being finalized, uh, the president has to certify every 90 days um, that Iran is in compliance with the terms of the deal, uh, and that uh, it is in the U.S. national security interests uh, to maintain the suspension of sanctions. Um, And and so basically what she's what she was doing here was putting meat on the bones and giving Trump a a justification for what he already wanted to do. But she did it in a very careful way. She didn't say we're going to walk through this door and not recertify this deal and kick it back to Congress. She was just making a case for why it would be a legitimate thing to do beyond the terms, the narrow terms of compliance. So she was arguing that we need to take into account not only the long history of Iranian hostility toward the United States um, and not only the terms of the JCPOA itself, but also the U.N. Security Council resolution that was passed after the JCPOA, which deals with missile development, which has been a huge a uh, bone of contention because it was outside the nuclear agreement and Iran has continued to pursue missile development in violation of that resolution. And then the Corker-Cardin legislation itself, which is what governs the American sanctions um, that were suspended under the terms of the agreement. And basically, if the president fails to certify to Congress in October, which is the next deadline, Congress then has this expedited process to consider whether sanctions are reimposed, so she was doing two things. She was laying out this substantive argument why it, it might not, it might be okay not to certify even if they're technically in compliance, but also she was saying, look, if we don't recertify, the sky's not going to fall. It doesn't mean that the agreement falls apart tomorrow. It means Congress gets to have a debate. And hey, we all love debates. Debates are fair, and it's Obama's fault we didn't have a debate. And so it would, you know, that might be a really good thing now. Setting aside the fact that the debate over Corker-Cardin and the Iran negotiations themselves in Congress were long and intense and detailed, and Congress ultimately passed this law that allowed Obama to suspend sanctions. Um, so I would say we had that debate, and you know, Nikki Haley lost that debate, and she'd like to have it again. Um, but, but I think that the big thing here was what she didn't say. She had nothing new to say about what is the alternative to this agreement. And at the end of the day, this is why um, Republicans lost the debate in the Senate. It's why Corker Carden passed. It's why Obama got the deal through, which is that there is no practical alternative available that will slow, suspend, roll back the Iranian nuclear program. So if this deal goes away, we have nothing to replace it with, and all of the concerns about Iran, you know, rushing to a bomb at the end of this agreement will be tomorrow concerns instead of 10 years down the road concerns. And so I thought what was not said, what she what arguments she couldn't make, because there aren't any, um, were as important as the arguments that she tried to make. But I also think I mean, yeah, I would agree with you, Susan, I think she is like a primary challenger in the waiting. But she was so, so, so careful not to say anything that was a millimeter in front of the president, and certainly nothing that contradicted the president.
2: I do wonder what the sort of long-term consequences for U.S. foreign policy will be from this kind of uh, signaling and rhetoric. And, and I think essentially the message is, you know, we might get enter into a deal with you, um, but whether or not we stick to that deal, um, we aren't gonna we aren't going to evaluate certification in good faith. We're gonna do it based on what the president of the United States wants to do. And, and that is a political calculation. So I, I appreciate what Haley is trying to do and sort of giving a, a little bit of, of space and, and moderating sort of the, the concerns and rhetoric over it. That said, she's also helping Trump in this effort, right? She's providing him cover. She's saying, well, whenever he says, like, I'm, not gonna, I'm looking for a way out of certification or we've had news reports that he's looking for a way out of certification. Instead of reaffirming the U.S.'s commitments, reaffirming that, you know, we will, um, we will act in good faith, we will have integrity in our deals, um, you know, saying we'll provide the president cover whenever he tries to back out of it. In the future, whenever we're trying to negotiate with other countries and they are looking at the historical record and saying, huh. Is it to our benefit to enter into these kinds of agreements? It would seem like a rational country, or maybe even a not-so-rational country, would take a look at this kind of conduct and think, well, why would we even bother? Either the president's going to change his mind later, or even if we do trust the president, you're going to elect somebody else who's just going to sort of screw us over. Susan, that's because you don't believe in putting America first. That's true. That's true. That's true. I true believe true. in putting America at fifteen. <laughs> Speaking of 15,
3: but, let me ask number 15. I mean, I think Susan actually raises just, a really kind of the, the, one of the key points here, which, you know, we're talking about Iran entering its nuclear program. And meanwhile, North Korea is claiming that it developed a hydrogen bomb. Um, so, And we don't have any negotiations with that country. Um, imagining, Ben, for a moment that we might be able to enter into negotiations with North Korea, which is a big if right now, if they would even sit at the table. Does this kind of signaling, if we can call it that, that we're at least open to revisiting agreements uh, very quickly that were formed by previous administrations, is that a disincentive for North Korea to sit down with us and negotiate over its nuclear program?
1: So I can't claim any uh, insight into what does and doesn't reasonably incentivize North Korea. I think they're a sufficiently opaque actor who has not always responded in the past to advantageous arrangements that um, you would think other countries would. That I would not. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so uncautious as to say, you know, if you behave X toward Iran, North Korea will take Y lesson from it. Because I just frankly don't know that. Um, and there's an uh, opacity to their thinking that I don't want to claim to be able to penetrate. Uh, that said, look, I, I think that you know, if you distill to its essence what Susan and Tammy were saying just now, it comes down to the fact that uh, we may not comply with the Iran deal irrespective of whether Iran does. And that does send a... You know, the fact that the United States may not comply with its international obligations as it has uh, committed to them is a destabilizing proposition in general. And I I don't know what the specific impact of that will be on, you know, the guys who kill their family members with anti-aircraft guns, but I don't think it's a good message for us to be sending as a general matter.
0: I actually think in some ways the message to uh, rogue states, if you will, um, is less significant than the message to allies and international partners in trying to confront these states. Um, And it was really striking to me the the gap between um, the history of American engagement on this issue, what made the negotiations, the sanctions against Iran successful, and then the negotiations over Iran's program successful was um, a joint, a collective commitment, not only between the United States and its allies, but Russia and China as well. Um, This was the P5 plus Germany that negotiated this deal uh, that, Iran's nuclear weapons development, or its nuclear program, was a threat to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That this kind of proliferation was a threat to international security, um, and that all of us agreed that this was a global challenge that we had to take on together. And that was what enabled the United States to leverage China to quit buying oil from Iran. And these are the things that really hurt the Iranian economy. And you know Haley yesterday was at pains to sort of use this America First framework to argue that the criteria in the Corker Cardin legislation, the criteria that the president should use in deciding whether to recertify this deal, is what's in America's national interest. She, she said not missile threats to our European allies. But what's in our national interest, as if missile threats on our European NATO allies aren't in our, you know, something that concerns our national interests. But anyway, you know, it was sort of rejecting the idea that this is a global security problem that other countries should work with us to solve for their own good reasons. Whereas in the North Korean case, you know, the administration's constantly asserting that China should care about this and China should fix this because it's a problem for the world and it's just like, no, these you can't make both these arguments at the same time. Or if you do, one undermines the other. And we're, and the ones that are most um, worried about this are America's allies, whether it's Japan and South Korea and East Asia, or Europe and Israel and the Gulf, uh, with respect to Iran. So I, to me, that was, in a way, the most troubling part of Haley's remarks. Let
3: me just ask as we close this up. And this is just a totally predictive question. But... <clears throat> I mean, the J in JCPOA stands for joint, and I was struck by that, that comment, too, where she said this is about U.S. national security. This is not about European it's security. It's
0: not about Europe. Right. <laughs> in which,
3: in which let's, it is about Europe. I mean, that's the whole point of the plan. So right. in, in, in acknowledging that Ambassador Haley took this very careful step of not getting ahead of the president, but, you know, people are people are talking, people are saying about the possibility of her being a 2020 candidate or you know, if he doesn't run or if he's primaried, whatever. Do you think she believes what she said? I mean, do you think she really believes that this is only about U.S. national interest? Or do you think, do you see in Nikki Haley someone who, no, actually does, maybe she didn't like the Iran nuclear deal, but understands the way that this is a, a multinational effort that really is about more than just our security?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, look, she was a governor. She wasn't, you know, a big foreign policy voice before she came into the administration. Um, To the extent that she had things to say on foreign policy issues or, you know, if you were trying to read tea leaves based on who advised her and so on, before she entered this administration, she seemed to lean in the direction of the internationalist wing of the Republican Party and not to be somebody comfortable with this kind of America first rhetoric. But she's obviously um, determined to be comfortable with it in the context in which she's currently working. And she really embraced it fiercely yesterday, as you noted. So, um, you know, so I think that if she does end up running, she's going to have to find a way to decisively separate herself from some of the things that she has had to say. In the meantime, though, as long as she's sitting at the chair, as um, the U.S.'s permanent representative in New York, this kind of America first language is essentially unilateral disarmament for a a U.S. perm rep in New York. Her whole job there is to corral the other members of the P5 to go along with American interest. And she's basically just said, we don't give a crap about any of you. So, you know, they will quite reasonably look at her the next time she brings Iran up at the Security Council and say, you're on your own. And on
2: note, I don't even think she was on Politico's list. <laughs> Much less with a bobblehead.
3: Uh, all right, let's switch now and talk about a topic that is exclusively about U.S. national interest, which is uh, the recovery from Hurricane Harvey. <clears throat> um, and right as uh, the region was recovering from that, just I mean, monumentally devastating storm, this struck. This the statistic that struck me the most was that the equivalent of the Chesapeake Bay in volume of water. Was dumped in Texas and Louisiana by that storm.
0: Yeah, and without all the awesome Maryland blue crabs. Yes,
3: there were no crabs in there that we know. Uh, of.
0: Big alligators, <laughs> but no crabs.
3: Yeah, uh, and streams of chemical filled water running everywhere. Now, just as that is happening, um, Hurricane Irma is, is approaching the Florida coast um, at a category five strength right now and might be a category four by the time it makes landfall on Sunday. So we're watching that very closely. Um, you know, this was. I safe to say probably right, the first major domestic security test for the Trump administration. Um, I'm curious to see people's first impressions on how we think they did. And noting, too, that the Homeland Security Department right now is currently without a secretary, but has this pretty capable civil servant at the head of it. Um, uh, Susan, what was your reaction to the the response and the mitigation that's going on now.
2: So my thinking is that they did a pretty good job except for the president, right? Everything else seemed to work well. Um, You know, a a lot of the credit does go to local authorities, right? Ultimately, the mayor and the governor make decisions about things like evacuation orders. And
3: probably, I think many (laughs) experts have been debating this, but it seems like A lot of us are saying that he did make the right call and not evacuate. Exactly. It
2: does seem like the decision not to evacuate, I mean, people would have been stuck on the freeways. We all saw sort of the images of these freeways under feet of water. I mean, impossible to know the counterfactual. And, you know, I think the death toll is at 60 right now. Obviously horrifying, but considering the possible, uh, you know, casualties we might have been looking at, right? Katrina's 1,800. So this is. And it's been
3: greater during evacuation scenarios, too.
2: Right. Um, I think you're right. 130 people died in um, evacuating from Hurricane. Rita which was sort of a botched evacuation out of Houston uh, in the months after Katrina so I, I mean I think that we're seeing um, we're seeing sort of the system does continue to work um, we have a pretty capable uh, FEMA administrator um, uh, Tammy I think you noted not on the podcast but but uh, earlier that um, you know there are now laws requiring that the FEMA administrator have particular levels of experience it a turns post, out post Katrina law yeah exactly it turns out that's the brownie a brownie law that's a pretty good idea um, and so I think that the, you know, we, we sort of we saw the pieces move in, in the right way. Um, uh, we saw a system that still exists. Um, we saw the benefit of sort of expertise and experience, you know, really in, in keeping people safe. And then we had this big lumbering buffoon at the top, right? And so you know, everybody who sort of had a job to do, and and we'll see about sort of recovery efforts, which are really a, a separate issue. Um, but you know, the role of the president of the United States in these kinds of situations is really pretty discreet and and twofold. Um, One is helping provide, you know, sort of uh, clear emergency communications messaging, right? When there needs to be sort of a signal boost or amplification, coming out, making statements, either urging people to evacuate, you know, helping people understand what they need to be doing, and two, providing comfort and, and a sense of unity and going out there and... And, uh, you know, and, and giving us those images of everything's going to be okay. And, you know, Trump... Hey, but Susan, you
1: forgot the key role of promoting friends' books.
2: And his house Which
1: hats. is a traditional function of the president in disaster... Uh, uh, relief.
2: Yeah. So promoting friends' books and selling hats uh, for forty-five dollars. Uh, kind of ugly hats, too. <laughs> maybe you, maybe you could pull it off. Shane. I think it <laughs> would look all
0: right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think that red hat looks. good I don't to wear any. white. Anyone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about as we were watching all of this rescue effort going on is obviously the the Coast Guard um, deservedly got a lot of of uh, airtime in the media for the role that it was playing. In, uh, in rescues, including some pretty dramatic rescues, FEMA um, performing fairly well and obviously has a lot of work to do in the aftermath. Um, but then at the same time, there were some controversies about the role of, Uh, Customs and Immigration officers who were present on the ground uh, and they were there. Everyone said local and national officials said they were there to help. They were there as uniform officers to help with this broader effort. But apparently um, their presence was dissuading some immigrants from going to shelters um, or uh, approaching government for help. And it it was interesting to me because all of these agencies, Coast Guard, USCIS, FEMA, are part of this um, many-headed monster which is the Department of Homeland Security that was created in the wake of 9-11. And we spent so many years, you know, complaining about what a wreck DHS is operationally. (laughs) And I would say that with the exception of the controversy over USCIS, which is really driven by the president's policy and the president's messaging more than by the agency itself, with the exception of that, DHS agencies in this crisis did seem to be working together. Like this seemed like the first time it was a coherent department of the U.S. government. Am I wrong about that?
3: Ben, what do you think?
1: Well, I think, uh, the first time was really Sandy. Um, and the fact that we, you can forget Sandy in making that comment is I think a reflection of how well the government, federal government performed in Sandy. But look, I basically agree with you. I think, uh, DHS was always a many headed beast and it's a hard organization to, uh, uh, make function and, uh, the different components do have conflicting missions, particularly in a situation like this. And it is less cohesive than a lot of other federal agencies. And it is definitely doing better and working more cohesively than it has in the past. And And, uh, and I think that there is, you know, a lot to be cheerful about that. I do think, uh, however, that, you know, Susan's point that everybody performed well except the president is right. And, you know, there is uh, something very weird and dissonant about the president, you know, tweeting these admiring, wow, what a big storm. It's it's epic. Look at this crowd. uh, And seeming to to miss entirely the uh, the real kind of gravity of of. And tragedy of the situation for a lot of people involved, and I think you know the government can perform very well, but if it doesn't perform its its moral leadership function, uh, there will always be something wanting, and there certainly has been in this instance.
3: I just also think it an observation. Just <clears throat> I think one of the things that impressed me in covering Katrina was. The extent to which it really is state and local authorities that bear the brunt of the initial response and recovery and how much the government, federal government, can often do to get in the way or not provide support. But in the aftermath is really where this becomes a a managing bureaucracy challenge, right, when FEMA has to come in and there have to be inspections. And there are there's money that's being doled out and there are approval processes that you have to go through. And this is really where the federal government, I think, is yet to be fully tested. I mean, you're talking about a recovery effort on a scale that I think FEMA is probably not accustomed to on an ordinary basis, not to say that they, let's not prejudge it and say they can't handle it. But uh, and especially
0: about, if we're going to have another major hurricane in right. another heavily populated area Precisely, right precisely. Including
2: the, Puerto Rico, which we will have yes, responsibility for. Yes, exactly,
3: exactly. And I think there's a nearly $8 billion recovery package just for Harvey that's going through the, the Congress right now. It's the managing of the aftermath, and this is going to be a huge management challenge for the aftermath that really I think is going to be the test. When we're thinking about how did DHS perform, I'm not even sure that really we've seen the first major challenge for DAs. It's going to be a paperwork and administrative
2: And notably, the the sort of the first agency that we've seen kind of fall down on the job is the EPA, that there's been reporting that Superfund sites have not been secured, they haven't been tested. Uh, You know, you had the EPA issuing statements while saying, yes, we haven't tested, we haven't gone out and and, and inspected and tested yet, but it's because they're under flood water. Then we have, you know, the AP reporters walking up with their phones on totally dry land and snapping pictures, and, and we're seeing, you know, in the midst of the deconstruction of the EPA, they actually do have a job to do. That's not just about uh, promoting a fictitious climate change agenda it's or whatever about Scott Pruitt keeping thinks. Keeping the American people safe, and and on their first real test of messaging, or is it safe to be here? Is it not safe? What is the status? They do not appear to be doing all that well. Yeah.
3: All right. Let's move on to object lessons tomorrow. What's your object today?
2: Um, well, my
0: object is an <laughs> is an article from Vox that came out yesterday. Um, Written by Zach Beauchamp, and it's headlined "Why Democrats have no Foreign Policy Ideas." Um, and it, it's an interesting article for a lot of reasons. i I could critique it at length. I think there are some useful um, things in there and and some very, very interesting quotes. But really, the reason that I wanted it to be my object lesson is because I think poor Zach Beauchamp, it might be the worst timed article. Uh, certainly of the week, maybe of the month, or even of the year, because um, in this article, which is all about the Democrats and Democratic Party uh, policy institutions and Democratic think tanks' failure to develop foreign policy ideas, the very same day, the Center for American Progress announced an incredibly awesome hire to head up their foreign policy and national security program, which is signaling new ideas and new energy, uh, exactly in the place where Zach Beauchamp said it didn't exist. Um, So uh, it's Kelly Magsiman, who has spent her career up until this point in government, in the Defense Department, State Department, and on the National Security Council working at a great range of issues, um, ended up as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and Pacific, I think. Uh, North Korea, anybody? She's incredibly smart. She's a strategic thinker. She's got uh, depth and, you know, so poor Zach Beauchamp. It was a good article idea, but he's already been
2: proven wrong.
3: It's a hot take turn cold. <laughs> Susan, what's your um, object? So
2: I have an object lesson, and my object lesson is a pizza hut. Oh. Not just any Pizza Hut, uh, the Pizza Hut in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh-huh. While the rest of Gitmo is in a shelter-in-place mode. There are 5,000 people that live there. And, uh, oh, because of the be hurricane. Sorry, absolutely I'm slammed um, by this hurricane. The good people who are manning the Pizza Hut, Carol Rosenberg, who uh, is sort of the best reporter on all issues, Gitmo um, has dutifully reported that the Pizza Hut is open. It will stay open, and so you know god bless pizza. you pizza <laughs> Huts. god bless
3: meat labor for, for everyone uh, and i'm just gonna this is not really national security theme but <clears throat> um at a time when we could all use a laugh when the world is very serious i just really <laughs> want to recommend to you you know i don't i'm not really one for viral video recommendations but this was truly special uh have you seen the, the Irish bat video?
2: No. I, I have
0: been sent the Irish bat video, but I <clears throat> haven't brought myself to watch it yet.
3: This filmmaker named Tareg Fleming, I suppose that's how you say his name, is at home and this bat gets into his parents' kitchen and he's filming it on his cell phone. And both the efforts to get rid of the bat and also just the absolutely hilarious uh, reactions and, yes, the Irish accents too, it is a delight. Go find it. Go on BuzzFeed. Go wherever viral videos are dispensed. Irish bat, it's truly brilliant. You will not be disappointed. I'm not even going to ruin
0: it for okay, you. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. Forget go. cat videos. It's time for the bat videos. It's time for
3: bat videos. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, after you've subscribed, please, please leave a five-star rating interview. It really helps us out. We appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Our music is performed this week by Ben Whittis and the Fabulous Fifteens. <laughs>
0: I, wait, I thought he was the Fabulous 14. Oh, now
3: you're know the <laughs> Grown. Ben,
2: ben, just let us enjoy You should this. be so lucky to have a band. <laughs>
3: but, of course, our music is actually performed by our friend Sophia Yan, who, if she had a band, Ben, I'm sure you would be in it, too. Gladly backing Sophia up. Uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Woodis, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.